0: This is Speaking Freely with the ACLU of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Hoover, your host and director of communications at the ACLU of PA. This episode is going to sound a little different from most of our past episodes. Last week, I participated in two public events on significant civil liberties issues, police reform and marijuana policy, and we're going to listen in on some of the voices from those events. On Thursday, the family of Osaze Osagi announced that they had filed a Notice of Claim with the State College Police Department. In March, a State College police officer shot and killed Osaze while serving a mental health warrant. His parents, Sylvester and Ayu, were worried about Osaze's state of mind after he had sent threatening text messages. With no mental health professional or even paramedics on the scene, Three officers went to Asazi's apartment, and in the ensuing encounter, one of them shot him dead. The family and their attorneys held a press conference on Thursday to announce the filing, which is a procedural move to maintain the family's legal right to future action. The voices you'll hear are Andrew Chelly from the Manhattan law firm Emory, Chelley, Brinkerhoff, and Abadi LLP, which specializes in civil rights litigation, Andrew Shubin, who is an attorney in State College, and myself. Let's listen in.
1: Today is the first official step in a legal process designed to accomplish what Sylvester and Ayun Osagi described at the borough council on September 9th, an effort to uncover the whole truth about what happened to their son, Osaze on March 20th and why and to hold the system accountable for its failures and for his tragic death. My name is Andrew Chelly. I'm with the law firm of Emory, Czelli, Brinkerhoff, and Abadie in New York City. And I'm here because for more than 25 years as a lawyer in private practice and in government, my focus has been on cases involving systemic failures in policing, how they happen, why they happen, and how to stop them from happening in the future. One of the things that makes this situation more tragic than any death of a young person is how many things were going right for Osaze Osagi before things went horribly wrong. Osaze defied all the stereotypes of mentally ill people that we have. He was not isolated or disconnected from his family. He was adored and in very close touch with them right up until his last days. They understood his illness, and they were dealing with it. They were not shunning him. Osaze was a person with mental illness who was not untreated or marginalized. He had a range of treaters, of therapists, of prescribers, and he'd been in treatment for some time, and a, a very robust professional network of supporters. This encounter did not occur suddenly or unexpectedly. Osaze's family alerted the police to exactly what the situation was. Time elapsed, supervisors were informed, yet still tragedy occurred. And the resources that would have helped Osaze, that would have saved him, were not scarce and they were not difficult to access. They were right there at hand. They were available to the police. Sylvester and Ayun, the treaters, the counselors, Center County can help. All, Strawberry Field, all of these supporters were there for Osaze. and still he died. This case is more than a tragedy. It is a profound failure. And our work on behalf of the family is to gather the facts. There are far too many unanswered questions, and to independently review them and analyze them and advocate for change. That is the injunction, that is the assignment that this family has given to this legal team. Now in my career I found that systems and organization, systems and organizations respond best when they are not only watched, but when they are questioned, when they are challenged, when they are pushed. And I saw that as an outsider in private practice and I saw it as an insider when I was a government enforcement lawyer in New York. Our plan is to meet with, the department to meet with the task force that the borough council has appointed to meet with the policymakers, to ask questions to demand answers to bring our own resources our own ideas and expertise to bear on these problems and we will also of course be a voice of conscience for this family that has suffered so much reform and change begins with getting to the truth and justice requires a willingness to hear the truth and to respond to it with action. We expect action to occur as a result of this, policy changes, training, personnel consequences if those are appropriate, compensation to the family, and a genuine effort to heal this community and avoid repeating the mistakes of the past. This is this family's project. It is our project which we share with so many people in this community. I'm an outsider, but I have watched the videos and read the the coverage, and it's remarkable to me. the, The singularity of purpose of this community behind this family for this project. So it's my honor to be an instrument of the family in this way, and after folks speak, I'm happy to take any questions. Thank you.
2: Good morning. My name is Andy Shubin. I'm an attorney, and I've been practicing law in this community since 1991. My law firm specializes in working with vulnerable communities and litigating important, we think, important civil rights issues. Um, As a housekeeping matter, I want to let you know that we'll be distributing a press release um, and a copy of a filing uh, that we're submitting today. Uh, um, It's not quite here yet, but when it gets here, we'll distribute that after... But we're done taking questions. First, I want to echo the gratitude that Ayun and Sylvester Osagi have expressed to the State College Borough Council for convening a task force in response to the police shooting of their son Osazi. The Osagi family agrees with Council that this shooting has impacted the broader State College community and that many persons in our community are mourning the loss of Osazi's life. A death which we believe was entirely unnecessary which and which stems from and is indicative of among other things systemic training and policy level failures we believe that the reports authored by the center county district attorney and the state college police department entirely miss the central and critical issues that worry our community How did it happen that police officers who responded to a mental health crisis knew so little about the circumstances that they were operating in that they violated the most basic and fundamental crisis de-escalation techniques? How is it that the officers made no plan as to how to respond to a situation where the specific and explicit information available to them was that Osazi was suicidal and threatened hours before to take his life and the life of others. How is it that these officers didn't know these critical facts when they responded? They only wanted to know what Osazi was wearing. Why didn't these officers know about these threats? Did they lack curiosity to find this out? Is it the police department? Is it that the police department didn't think it was important for them or required for them to know this? According to reports, the responding officers describe this as a routine call. Routine. How is it that when the parent of a mentally ill child in crisis calls the police and their child winds up dead, that the official law enforcement conclusion is that the police did nothing wrong? There's no room for improvement, no occasion for introspection or reform our community, and most importantly, the mothers and fathers of children of color, of children with mental health challenges, need to feel confident that the police are there to serve these children and this community, rather than simply police it. Thank you.
0: Good morning, everyone. Uh, Thank you for being here. Uh, My name is Andy Hoover, I'm Director of Communications for the ACLU of Pennsylvania. I also want to point out I'm joined today by my colleague Alex Domingos, Alex is an organizer uh, for the ACLU of Pennsylvania's Campaign for Smart Justice. Um, Just a bit of um, housekeeping, the ACLU of Pennsylvania um, is not uh, co-counsel in this case, um, but we are here uh, in support of the Asagi family and in support of people in the community who are concerned about what happened that day. And first, on behalf of the ACLU of Pennsylvania, I want to express my condolences to the Osagi family. Um, I'm a parent, but I don't think you have to be a parent um, to appreciate the sorrow um, of, that, you're, that you're going through. Um, Osage's passing is a tragedy. Um, but as you've heard, it's a tragedy that did not have to happen. Uh, as you've heard, the State College Police knew that Osage was in a crisis, or some people in the department knew that. And with that information, they knew or should have known that approaching him would require care. Their job was to keep themselves and Osaze safe and to be a part of the solution to getting him the care he needed. Instead, their approach to Osaze's apartment was one of control. And we should be clear, there was no ongoing crime happening uh, in that moment. He was a young man who was ill and whose family was worried about him. Sadly, this story is not unique. Every year, approximately 1,000 families experience the grief and trauma of a loved one being killed by police officers in the United States. And according to the data collected by the ACLU, the percentage of people who are killed by the police who have mental health disabilities is at least 25%. According to the State College Police Department's internal review, the officers on the scene followed their training. If that's true, then their training has to change. If covering the people on the door of someone who is in a mental health crisis is how they're trained, then the training has to change. If not having a mental health professional on the scene is part of the training, then the training has to change. If ignoring information about the state of mind of the person in crisis is part of the training, then the training has to change. We understand the police have a difficult job. They are often encountering people at their most difficult moments. But that's not an excuse for killing someone when there are alternative ways to approach a situation that increase the likelihood that everyone will still be alive at the end of the encounter. Osase Osage should be alive today. And this filing that's happening uh, won't bring him back. But hopefully, it will reveal more information about what happened that day who was involved, and how state college police are trained to deal with people with mental health disabilities. Let's prevent this type of tragedy from happening again. Thank you very much. Earlier in the week, I was in Pittsburgh to participate in a half-day symposium on marijuana policy that was sponsored by the Caucus, a state capital watchdog newspaper. My colleague Terrell Thomas and I participated in a panel discussion that morning But before our panel, attendees heard from Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman. Earlier this year, the lieutenant governor visited all 67 counties in Pennsylvania in just over three months on a listening tour about marijuana policy. At those events, attendees had the opportunity to offer their feedback on a wide range of issues. In this talk, Fetterman offered the audience some of what he heard and learned on that tour.
3: I heard unanimous, you know I, I can say virtually unanimous. I can count them on one hand, unanimous support for our medical cannabis program. They loved it. And I would like to remind everybody what a sea change that is in Pennsylvania. You know those of you that follow the subject closely, was that a controversial vote? Was that a simple process? And of course the, the answer was it's not. But in just that short amount of time, it has gone from a contentious issue to universally loved. And I would, uh, uh, the medical program, uh, and I give credit to the legislature, they've crafted what I would consider the gold standard of medical cannabis legislation here in Pennsylvania. It's thoughtful and uh, uh, people are, it's changing the hearts and minds of people because you have a lot of folks standing up and, and and I would say, you know, I would ask them if they, even if they're not ready for recreational or adult use recreational cannabis, I would say, well, how do you feel about medical? And they'd be like, oh no, I love, I love medical. I get it. You know, I, I think it's, I think it's great. Um, so uh, Pennsylvania did a really great job on on the medical cannabis aspect. The one single issue that we heard about the medical cannabis uh, universal uh, issue is the expense of it where it was said over and over again, well, I can go to the doctor and I can get as many prescriptions for pain pills as you know they cost $5 with a copay, but the, the, the medical cannabis is so expensive. And of course, because it's a, a schedule one drug, of course, insurance can't touch it and it's still technically uh, illegal at the federal level. So that creates a huge issue in Pennsylvania across the board of people that are desperate to partake in our medical cannabis program, but because of the fee that it takes to get a doctor's note and the ongoing lack of insurance reimbursement creates a real, that's the single biggest issue when it comes to it. And as you may know, Pennsylvania just added two additional conditions, Tourette's and anxiety to the list, which again, we heard over and over again. We actually had people uh, at different events that suffered from Tourette's and they were desperate to have this and anxiety over and over again. So um, uh, you you just, it was a very responsive and common sense uh, expansion of the medical conditions that our cannabis program applies to. Another thing, another thing that received universal support is, is that nobody across all of Pennsylvania's 67 counties wants to see someone's record, life, employment, schooling, anything damaged by a simple silly, Cannabis possession charge or drug paraphernalia charge. You know this idea that you can have your record, uh, you know, permanently uh, marked for for something that is, you know, just you know, really should be. Uh, I don't think should be uh, something. And, and as many of you know, it is not uniformly enforced. You know, uh, p- communities and individuals of color use it at the same rates as, as whites, but you're much, much more likely to have these kind of charges if you uh, are a, a person of color. So no one wants to see these charges remain on on people's uh, records. Uh, that's unanimous. Another thing, um, they they really believe, that they, they believe in, in uh, we have bigger fish to fry, you know. No one believes that this drug belongs on schedule one, no one. Even if the, even those that don't believe that they there's, they support recreational use, no one thinks that it belongs in the same category as you know heroin and you know meth and all these other drugs. No one no one buys that. And another thing that uh, another big takeaway is how desperately how desperately our veterans are for medical and just uh, adult use cannabis here in, in, in Pennsylvania because the VA won't help them with it. In fact, it's illegal for vet, for VAs. And I would have room after room full of veterans that, that were literally beg for the opportunity. They're like, I, I was damaged defending a country that considers me a criminal if I partake in the one substance that just gets me to feel normal so I can begin therapy for PT, my PTSD or what, what have you. Um, that was another you know, universal. Um, And I would peg the support for cannabis, for adult use across Pennsylvania, somewhere in the 65 to probably not exceeding 70% range across Pennsylvania. We had a small handful of counties that were where the room was in opposition. And at the end of each event, I would do uh, all those in favor, all those opposed, all those undecided, and we recorded all of those. So people could see exactly where the room was. We had a uniform invitation cycle where it would go out over official uh, announcements. We never tried to steer it. We never tipped off a certain group. There was no foregone conclusion uh, in terms of the, the you know, we we're trying to steer the conversation. It was a true open ended. And of the, the, the small number of counties where the room was uh, didn't support it, you know, there were instances there where certain uh, state reps, tried to kind of pack the room with 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 uh, strict prohibitionists uh, in order to kind of skew that, which doesn't really did never made any sense to me in the first place because we just wanted to hear what the truth was. You know, anyone wants to come, they can come and and voice their opinions, and that's exactly what they did. And um, if you look at kind of like the early polling, that would have pegged support in Pennsylvania in the high fifties. And uh, CBS did uh, released a poll on 420, or April 20th of, of this year. And actually 56 percent of Republicans support adult use recreational cannabis. So this idea that, you know, we have our finger on the scale, or somehow, when we would go to these really red conservative counties and say, well, a majority of people in the room support it," was, is borne out by some of this, this data. And and the the explanation to that, at least my theory is, is that the Republican Party has a strong libertarian streak to it. And we encounter that a lot, saying the government has no business, I'm not hurting anybody. What I I do in the privacy of my own room, it's none of anyone's business. And why is this a problem? Why is this illegal? You know, I I wanna be able to um, uh, partake in this, it's my right, I should be able to grow my own medicine, I should be able to grow my own, uh, much the same way, I'm allowed to brew my own beer, make my own wine, you know what, what have you. So, uh, across across all these counties, the 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 more contentious it was in a county, the higher the attendance was. Ironically, ironically, the lowest attendance were in places where there is unanimous, you know, virtually unanimous support, like in Philadelphia you know, where it was kind of hotly debated, like in Lancaster and York or in in uh, Scranton, these rooms were packed and, and people really got into it, not in a very respectful way. And that's another point I'd like to mention, uniform civility across every 67 counties. And, a lot, and everyone appreciated to be in the same room with someone that they may have not agreed with. And we never had to break it up, break it up, you know, kind of like a, you know, um, uh, like really, you know, kind of like flame wars like you have online or anything like that. It's a lot easier to to just dump on somebody online in a tweet than it is when they're sitting in the room and they got a chance to hear each other's perspectives. And that was really useful and that was really helpful. So uh, at the end of the day, Pennsylvania supports it. And there's some things that they very much support. And that is that no one believes that it's a schedule one substance. Everyone wants, to, uh, no one wants to have their records damaged in terms of uh, whether that's an expungement of some kind or what have you. And, and everyone is wildly supportive of our medical program, which continues to change the hearts and minds of people because they think it's going to be some kind of shady head shop and like there's gonna be stoners hanging around and, and whatever, and then they actually walk in and it looks like, a, you know, like the Apple store only has cannabis under the glass. And their elderly neighbors a patient or whatever and it's like the the, the, the real face of who's <laughs> using medical marijuana has continued to emerge and the and, and information of that and children that benefit from it has really helped change the hearts and minds across Pennsylvania uh, and uh, it's it's moving us in a direction and the observation was made constantly of Pennsylvania regardless of what our legislature and the governor ultimately decide to do, is going to be a wash in legal cannabis at some point in the next couple of years. New York just decriminalized it. New Jersey is right at the cusp of, of, of legalizing it. You know, Washington DC, Maryland, you know, all these states and all these territories around us are, are moving and, and, and
0: stepping forward. Later that morning, Terrell Thomas from ACLUPA's Campaign for Smart Justice and I participated in a panel discussion on the legal implications of marijuana prohibition and legalization. And Terrell and I offered our thoughts on why cannabis regulation has to be disconnected from the criminal legal system. Take a listen. And I think that you can't talk about um, the need for legalization without at least including some context about the criminal legal system, and and where we are right now in the failed war on drugs. Uh, I was listening to Dr. Wasson talk about the harms, and he's, he was talking about the physical harms, which is fine, you know, totally his his lane as a doctor um, I'm pro-science. Um, but there's another harm that we have right now, and that's the fact that marijuana prohibition, because it is an issue in the criminal legal system, that creates great harm to people who end up being connected and caught up in that system. Um, Terrell's gonna talk in a little more detail uh, about the harms that come about as a result. Um, We do have this Campaign for Smart Justice. Um, That's that's Terrell's area of work, along with several of our colleagues. Um, And the the goal of the Campaign for Smart Justice, which is a nationwide campaign, um, is to reduce the prison and jail population by 50%, um, and to challenge racism in the criminal legal system. Uh, It's well documented, but I'll repeat it, that in 1980, there were 8,000 people in Pennsylvania state prisons. Today, there are 47,000 people in our state prisons. There are more than 30,000 in our county jails, and on any given day in Pennsylvania, there are 300,000 people on either parole or probation, which are forms of community supervision. Um... People believe that probation is an alternative to incarceration. I guess in the most literal sense it is. You're not in jail, um, but you are trapped in a system where there are invisible tripwires, where law enforcement is constantly waiting for you to fail. Um, and just as an aside, to give the caucus a little, a little credit, uh, there was, they put out a report last week, or last month, Um, about how the Allegheny County DA has a system of cameras, and one of their ideas is to put these cameras in schools to track kids who are on probation. Exactly my point, that this probation system is one in which uh, the law enforcement agents who enforce it are looking for people on probation to fail. Now, what does that have to do with marijuana? You hear DAs um, and marijuana reform advocates both saying that people generally are not getting sentences of incarceration for possession. Um, so the fact that both DAs and marijuana reform advocates are saying it, I'm going to take it on faith. that I don't have the data, but I'm going to take it on faith that it's probably accurate. Um, but the sentences often do tend to be probation sis, uh, sentences. Um, and as a result, you have people in this probation system where they, there's no maximum sentence for how long you can be on probation. If you fail, if you, whether it's a, a new crime or a viola, just a violation of the rules, your sentence can start over again. Uh, you know, the, Probably a big, a well-known case is the Meek Mill case, which just finally wrapped up after 12 years. Um, he was on probation for an issue that happened when he was 18 years old. Um, and so to tie that into marijuana, the point is that this system or, or this policy of marijuana prohibition, because it's part of the criminal legal system, Um, creates great harm for people. There are about 20,000 possession arrests every year in Pennsylvania. Um, And the racial disparities are significant. Uh, An African American in Pennsylvania is four times more likely to be arrested for marijuana possession uh, than a white person, even though the surveys show that the usage rate is basically the same across all races. Um, so there's a significant racial disparity in arrests. And actually here in, here in Pittsburgh, um, just to bring it, bring it local. Um, last year, there were um, just over 700 possession arrests in the city of Pittsburgh. 75% of them were African-Americans, even though the black population of Pittsburgh is 25%. Um, so with that in mind, I want to segue to Terrell, who's working in the community and can talk more about um, the harmful effects of uh, this policy being in the criminal legal system.
4: So, marijuana prohibition is a gateway into the criminal legal system. Um, you know, being in, in a community that's can, that we, we, we recognize are being targeted, uh, and, and, and the access to uh, quality defense and things like that are, are, are minimal. We have people who are actually taking plea deals and, uh, for marijuana possession. Now, what happens with that? We understand that there's probation and parole issues and things like that, and you get arrested, so now you have uh, uh, the, the ability to potentially lose your job over a small amount of marijuana. You have the ability to not afford childcare and things of that nature. So when you talk about not making these laws even retroactive and things of that nature and actually keeping it, keeping it to be um, the prohibition, the same place, now we have people who are actually in prison who are unable to get out for, for something that is even being legalized and things like that. They're unable to be able to come back and restore their places back into society. We have fathers, we have mothers who are in jail for marijuana, for marijuana, the things that we're advocating to be sold and in, in, in our communities and things like that. And so we have to take a look at wh- how is this actually is having a negative impact on black and brown communities. Um, one of the things that, uh, that, I, that I really um, w- want to know is out of these 200,000 people who are uh, actively seeking, um, who are actually signed on for medical marijuana, how many of them actually have records? And so we talk about the, the ability to be able to even go in and, and, and enjoy it um, or, or need it. For, for medical reform. How many of them are, are actually have access to that information, are gone through this process, and actually are, are in this room today? We're being left out of the conversation. We're really being left out of what needs to be done and how it's actually having an impact on our community and our city and on our state. And so us in the different uh, different realms, whether it be uh, district attorneys or advocates or legislators, actually have to present this information to the community and do more ac- more community outreach instead of in-reach when it comes to these, when it comes to these different topics. Um, the Campaign for Smart Justice is about actually centering the voices of people who have been impacted by the issue. So when we talk about marijuana reform, when we talk about uh, decriminalization, we talk about prohibition, and we talk about even medical, that we need to have people here who are using medical marijuana. We need to have people here who who have been criminalized by marijuana. We need to have people here who have recently been released with marijuana charges to actually understand the implications that it has on our community and on these people, because it's not a black issue. It's not a white issue. It's a marijuana issue. Now, we know black people are four times more likely to be arrested for marijuana. We know that our, our, our neighborhoods are over police and things of that. But we have people we know, like, like Andy said, the use is even around the board. It's not a lower-income poor people who are just using marijuana. It's lower-income poor people who are using marijuana who don't have access to medical marijuana, who don't have access to distiller—they um, call it a pharmacy. I never even heard—I'm used to going to a pharmacy and getting cough syrup. <laughs> I mean, that's astonishing. We don't have access to those things. Throughout the discussion, Terrell and I continued to come back to who is harmed by the criminalization of marijuana. What's going on, on the ground is that um, black communities, black and brown people, are being left out of the marijuana business. We are the, we, and, we, and we do know that the criminalization of marijuana was actually created to keep black and brown people out of out of the workforce, out of positions of power to separate them from actually getting to the next level of um, what, we, what we need economically, and that's still taking place. The, the DA was speaking about he can't tell if a person has a marijuana card, they're using legal marijuana or medical marijuana. And so they have to go through all the different ramifications that go through the legal process. So people are still being arrested, they're still, taking, they're still going to jail for smoking either legal or recreational marijuana. See, that issue doesn't have to take place. If it was recreational marijuana, if it was legal, we'll be able to put that tax money back into the same community that it has negatively impacted and things like that. That's what we need to be taking a look at. States seem to be getting tripped up on the details
0: of legalization. You know, we're seeing that in New Jersey. Um, as you heard from, from uh, my opening comments, Terrell's opening comments, our first priority is to get law enforcement out of this business. Um, and, and to, to decouple uh, cannabis from the criminal legal system. Um, so there's that strategy now, and, and I understand that they were looking at it in Vermont or pursuing it in Vermont, which is a, a two-bill strategy. One is to, to do just that, to remove cannabis from the criminal legal system, and then in a second bill, get into the details um, of legalization and what legalization looks like. Um, I think that is an important strategy because Um, As we've been discussing, there are people right now today um, who are either under government supervision, either incarcerated or on probation or parole uh, because of this, or uh, being arrested. There will be people arrested today um, because they possess marijuana, Um, and so our number one priority um, is, is ending that. And finally, in his closing comments, Terrell addressed the off-heard talking point that people
4: don't go to jail for possession of marijuana. It's not true. One of the things that's important to me is that the, the cost that this actually puts on the people in Allegheny County. It costs like $9 million to run an Allegheny County jail. About 80% of those people in there are for parole or probation violation. A lot of those people that are in there for probation or pro- uh, parole violation are there for recreational marijuana. They're in there for dirty yarns and technical violations and things like that, people are being taken to jail for having a joint. Now, how many people actually have one joint on them at a time and things like that? But in these different communities where they target, where police target, where they have not been decriminalized and they haven't had these conversations about over-targeting these communities, those people do go to jail, I do go to jail, for having a blunt of marijuana on me. And so we have to address that fact. If the marijuana is not going to be decriminalized, we're going to keep putting a burden on taxpayers And we're going to to keep locking locking people away who don't deserve to be in jail. That money could be used for rehabilitation, for educational programming, and actually doing more work with teens who who we say that we're worried about using drugs.
0: So there you have it, a brief window into the daily life of work at the ACLU of Pennsylvania. I want to thank Terrell Thomas and everyone from the caucus for putting on an informative and thought-provoking event on cannabis. And heartfelt sympathies to the family of Osaze Osagi, who have endured a parent's nightmare. The death of their son at the hands of government employees who should have protected him. Here at the ACLU of PA, we hope that some measure of change can happen in State College in the wake of Osaze's death. That closes Episode 31. The editor of Speaking Freely is Amy Giacomucci. Our music is from bensound.com. The executive director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania is Reggie Shuford. I'm Andy Hoover. Until next time, be free.